This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. You know, today for our hot question of the day, we're talking about the Massey Tunnel because today is the 60th birthday of the George Massey Tunnel. And you know, it's been a big part of my life. It's really weird to say that, but as I was thinking about it, I thought, oh, it's really true. Growing up, the Massey Tunnel was the route that we always took to drive into town or visit close relatives. And I always heard stories from my family members about how they remembered when the Massey Tunnel was built, because before that, they had to drive over to the Patola Bridge to get into town and what a hassle that was. And they were so happy when the Massey Tunnel was built. And then later on, when I had a house and family of my own, it was in South Delta. So I went through that tunnel to sometimes three or even four times a day. And and eventually it became the reason why I just couldn't take it anymore. I had to move because I couldn't go through that tunnel two, three, four times a day. So I feel like it's a part of my personal history. And we've spent a lot of time talking about the potential replacement for it. So we thought that's a good day to do that, right? 60th birthday of the Massey Tunnel. Let's talk about uh, how we're going to improve upon this piece of infrastructure for the 2020s and beyond that. What kind of replacement would you like to see there? Would you like us to twin the tunnel? Should we build a bridge? Or should we just leave it as is? Maybe build a crossing somewhere else? You tell me. That's our hot question of the day today. Now you can email me, simi at cknw.com, but we'd really love it if you voted on those options. You could go to simisarah980 on Twitter to cast your vote. You can also go to at cknw. There's the three options there, twin the tunnel, build a bridge, or leave the tunnel as is. Cast your vote and let us know what you think. Or use our buzz line, tell us a story. Maybe if you're actually stuck in traffic at the tunnel, you could do that for us as well. Of course, use your hands free. 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331-2899. And let us know your thoughts on that. It is the story that prompted widespread horror and so much anger when we heard about it last week. Story of a young Indigenous girl in government care who was reporting a sexual assault back in 2012. And rather than being supported or even being told what her rights were, and plus she was a minor here, instead she was treated as a liar. And the RCMP have really been under fire for this. And is it no wonder? Just have a listen. And again, some listener discretion here. It it can be quite disturbing to listen to, but have a listen to what this girl went through. Were you at all turned on during this at all, even a little bit? Physically, you weren't at all responsive to his advances, even maybe... um, Subconsciously? Maybe subconsciously, but no, not. I was really scared. Okay. Because you understand that when a guy tries to have sex with a female and the female is completely unwilling, it's very difficult, right? Yeah, yeah, it hurt a lot. It hurt a lot? At the beginning? For the whole thing. Is part of the reason you came up with this in the first place and told us about and told your foster dad about this is because you were scared you might be pregnant and you needed the pill? No, it was more because I just got taken advantage of and I didn't consent to it. I was just really scared at the time. I don't want you to lie. I want no lies. I'm not lying, though. I didn't consent to this. You know, every time I hear that, I just, my blood starts to boil. And in the days since APTN has made this story public, there has been an outpouring of reaction anger at how this girl was treated and support for her story. Now she is speaking out and she's talking to Holly Moore, the producer of the APTN Investigate series that first brought you this story. And Holly is with us to talk more about what has happened since. Holly, thanks so much for being back with us. 
Hi there. Hi. So this was back in 2012. What is life like for this young woman now? Well, I was honored to go out, and uh, so I went out to Kelowna. I just got back today, uh, spoke with the young woman. You know, she's completely uh, overwhelmed by the attention, of course, and this story has had reaction all across the country from survivors, politicians, you know, other media have picked this up. So, you know, she's really overwhelmed. Um, And one of the first questions that I asked her were around, you know, what is your reaction to to looking at that interview today. So she's probably the best person to answer that, so maybe we'll go to a clip from her there. Five minutes into the interview, I could tell that the police officer was accusing me. Back then, I had no idea that my rights were being violated. And now, as a parent, knowing my rights, sitting on the other side watching, it's so hard to watch because The questions are just disgusting. I felt like I had nobody there. And it was hard because most kids have their parents, but being in foster care, I had none of that at all. And the social worker that came with me was not supportive. Holly, what has life been like for her in the seven years since then? Yeah, it's it's been traumatic. I mean, like a number of Indigenous young women in this country, there's trauma layered on trauma. So uh, she was left homeless. She was exposed to drugs like MDMA. Uh, you know, she couch surfed for a little while. She certainly got things together now. She is married. Uh, she has a child. I won't say the age of the child just because of her identity. You know, but this experience has been incredibly overwhelming. And one of the things that she said to me in the interview was that when she was working with a trauma specialist, the trauma specialist said, you know, you've had a lot of trauma, but this interview is the peak of that trauma. So when they had to go back and see kind of how severe her uh, post-traumatic stress disorder had become, this is the moment. Uh, You know, so she's confronting that. She's confronting the fact that she will live with mental illness for her entire life. Uh, She's confronting the fact that she, you know, will always need to um, watch out for herself. And the worst thing is that she's really doubted her ability as a parent. Mm. So she's taking parenting classes. She's trying to do the best for her little family. And, you know, it, it just, it's just remarkable to listen to somebody who's been through this level of trauma. And what, so she's getting help now, I understand, right? From what you said, she's getting, she's in therapy. Mm -hmm. Well, she's, she's in intensive therapy. So the province is uh, currently paying for a very expensive uh, trauma specialist who's taking her through all of these traumas in her life, Uh, you know, and And really, she's accessing services now that are going to set her up to be able to face whatever is coming. And was that available to her now because of the lawsuit? I'm not sure. I think likely that they acted um, when they understood how bad it actually was. But I don't have information to suggest that it was from the lawsuit. Yeah. I'm sure this last week, though, has been one of a lot of awareness for her as well, since her story kind of became known and people are hearing that video. What has that been like for her? Well, you know, let's take a listen to what she told me um, about watching all the comments and all the news stories. 
because of my story, other people have come forward with their stories and it's horrifying, but we as Indigenous people are slowly taking it back and that makes me proud. I just want to let people know that I do see your positive words in the comments and I do hear your stories and every story breaks my heart. It helps me today knowing that people actually believe me what happened and that 17 year old me craved that so bad and now I have that validation and it means a lot. Oh, it sounds like she got really emotional there, Holly, and who can blame her? This must, this whole thing, watching this unfold nationally, it must be some a little bit more trauma for her as well. It is, and and so that's why, you know, that clip, I uh, she actually, like, in the clip, she puts her head in her hands, right? Uh. Uh, she breaks down completely, and, you know, I've been a journalist for a very long time, but both myself and the camera person were, we had tears in our eyes, too, because it's, you know, it's like watching the weight of this just kind of come down on her. And really, all it does is makes us more determined to go after the ministry, which is ultimately responsible for this young woman ending up in the RCMP station in the first place, and really just kind of galvanized us to try to go looking for some answers on what happened. The RCMP has given us a very short statement around, uh, you know, there being a more fulsome discovery in th as the civil case goes on. Uh, but really, I think that what hasn't been done is a really hard pressing of the province. How did this happen? Mm -hmm. How did that girl show up there in the first place? And really, what has been the consequences of that, right? Because a lot of people didn't do their jobs there. Yeah, and it's, it, you know, the accountability, we know that the province works very closely with RCMP. We know that there's liaison between the two departments. So let's examine that relationship and see what kind of damage is being done to Indigenous children in this country. And really, hopefully, this lawsuit will bear that out. Is there, do you think, some positive to come out of all of this, Holly? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the fact that this interview surfaced in the first place is is very good because according to the victim, you know, it really validates the fact that she had said that she was punished for making this complaint. And so the fact it surfaced and that people can look at it and pick it apart, that's fantastic. Uh, it validates her, but also I think that it, it gives voice to what Indigenous women have been saying in this country for decades. When we go to police to report sexual assaults, this is how we're treated. And certainly the reaction from the Indigenous community has been total outrage. And so I think that's very positive. And when you say punished, that she was punished for this, you mean that literally as well, right? Because wasn't she forced to write letters of apology? She was. Uh, she was forced to write letters of apology. She was had her phone taken away. Uh, she had been attending an Okanagan First Nation culture club that was run by an elder that was really putting her in touch with her culture. And uh, she was not allowed to go to that any longer. I confirmed that with the coordinator of the club. Uh, she was also not allowed to go to Sweat Lodge. Uh, so, I mean, it had a resounding effect on her social life and support. And does she, well, it's amazing then that she can feel that there is also some positive coming out of all this. And still no word from, Holly, the RCMP on this, like really directly addressing what happened here. No, uh, no, I, you know, I was in Kelowna yesterday and a rally was held 
by members of the Spotsine and Okanagan Nations. And so I went into the RCMP detachment to speak to somebody, left a message for the media person, and he wrote back uh, shortly after saying that they aren't entertaining any interviews to do with this situation. Did they use that word, not entertaining any interviews? Yep, yep. Wow, okay. Uh, Holly, thanks so much for the update on this, and we hope to talk to you again. Okay, thanks so much. That is Holly Moore, the producer of the APTN Investigate series. And of course, the APTN Network has done amazing work on this particular story. We're going to take a little walk down memory lane here, actually. Casting your mind back to the 1980s here in Vancouver, before the days of Expo. What was Vancouver like back then? Before Skytrain, right? Before Canada Place, back when False Creek was really all about industry on both sides of the water. This city has seen a huge transformation in the last 30 years. Now we talk about being, oh, the most, one of the most livable places on earth. Look at all this development, looking condo living, all that kind of stuff. But how did we get here? Well, our next guest was one of the people who was really in the middle of all of that planning as Vancouver went through that change. Larry Beasley was the co-chief planner for the city of Vancouver for 15 years. He's got a new book out. It's called Vancouverism takes a look at the remarkable change of the city that so many of us now call home uh, for better or for worse. And Larry is with us to talk more about this. Good morning. Morning. What is Vancouverism? Well, Vancouverism is the way that we decided in this city that we would build our city or transform our city back starting in the 70s and particularly after Expo 86. In a, in, a, in a concept that was quite different than cities all around us around the world and in North America, we said we would intensify, we would bring people back to live downtown, but we would do it at a, with amazing livability, we would add to park spaces, we would add amenities, we would, and we would go to alternative forms of transportation. Vancouverism, the Vancouver that we tried to create was what we felt would be the nature of cities in the future if they could be successful. You said we tried to create. So do you think we, did we hit the mark or did we miss it? You know, a city is always in a, in a stage of creation. I think we hit the mark very, very well with what we were working with, with what we knew, uh, and with the, the kind of marketplace we had and the interest of consumers that we had at that time, and we evolved that. Our very success has caused problems and that's also the nature of cities mm-hmm. cities are organic you know uh, you get fit and then you find out that you uh, you have some something you didn't even think about and that's yeah. kind of what happens in cities as well you use the marker of expo 86 as kind of a before and after which i think is perfect because anybody who lived here during that era knows it was a completely different place before from what came after, and why do you think that was? Well, you know, first is that marker resonates to people at a very personal level. It's one of those yeah. things, you know, everyone can tell you what they were doing you know, when Expo started. So to give identity to this story, it was a good place to start. But more importantly, the city started to change Partly, Expo was a response to problems we had in our city. We were in an economic malaise before Mm -hmm. that. And partly because of Expo, as we became known to the world, and all of a sudden, a city that people hadn't even known about, they started saying, wow, this might be a good place to invest, to live, to want to be in, to visit. Do you think, so yeah, that was the moment then where people came to Vancouver and went, this is a nice place. And we who lived here were like, wow, people like us. Yeah, yeah. And... We realized we weren't prepared 
for that new kind of place in the world. You know, we were, we were kind of a provincial town. We were in the resource industry. It was a fine place, nice place to live. But, you know, we weren't really prepared. And, and so we had to transform. Not only that, as that resource industry fell apart uh, for us, we had to say, what was going to be the future uh, economy of our city? And we realized it was going to be the ideas industries. You know, we're now a huge uh, filmmaking industry uh, uh, city. And so we said to ourselves, what does a city have to be if it's going to be that kind of place? And we realized it had to be a really high-quality place to live. Dick, did we say that to ourselves, Larry, or did this happen organically? No, well, actually, we quite... Um, explicitly had this discussion and debate. And I think it was because Expo 86 showed us that cities could be so different and so exciting. So as that was over, we said, well, now what's going to happen? Yeah, we wanted more of that. We want more of that. But also, hey, if we're going to be an ideas economy, look what that brought to us. But what if we made the nature of it, the progressiveness of it, the positiveness of it, the social responsibility of it, the beauty of it, a part of the chemistry of the whole future city. That's true. I think what people thought of, what we saw at Expo 86 was how we wanted to be thought of moving forward. Yeah, and you'll recall, and you'll recall, I think you said you were in grade nine. I was in grade nine. I still have my Expo 86 pass. Went yeah, to and you'll, to go get you'll, that. you'll recall that Expo 86 was telling the world what all cities yeah. should be like. World in motion. Right. And we said, yes, that message resonates for us. That message is a really good way to get beyond the malaise that we had faced. People like uh, Grace McCarthy, who was a politician of the time, yes. she started this amazing host program to teach us how to host visitors. Right? I was saying that Airbnb before there was Airbnb. Yeah, and yeah. and and that evolved, and then we realized, well, there's more to it than just tourism. It's about how you live. And then, as we moved into the '90s, we began to be conscious of an environmental agenda. That, in fact, we could not continue to sprawl out onto our farmland. We we're one of the few places in the world protecting our farmland, so we didn't want to continue to sprawl, and we didn't want our downtown to be a dead place. You know, it's hard to, for people to remember huh. that at six o'clock in this town. Everything rolled up. That's so true. You know? Yeah. Now, 120,000 people are living here. They're here day and night. They look after their city. They do wonderful things. You'll see activities and programs going on. You know, I was walking uh, about 10 o'clock last night because I live in the downtown. Hundreds and hundreds of people are out enjoying the lovely evening and one another. That's not something you would have seen 25 years ago. No. And it's not something you see in cities all over North America. Really, Cities, most inner cities still, with all the efforts that have been going on in my generation, most cities in North America are pretty sleepy in their, in their core city in the evening. So what is it that we did that worked? Well, the main thing we did is that we invited people to come back and live here. When you live in a place, you're there day, day and night. Mm-hmm. You also you look after your city. You make sure it's a it has the opportunities and the amenities and all of that you want. Second thing is we found a unique way, and I'm now out teaching other cities about this, to to take the wealth of development and apply it to the public agenda, the public amenities, not just have developers make a lot of money and, and go off somewhere else. Yes, they made money, but great wealth was brought to invest in our city. You know, all the amenities that you think about in downtown Vancouver that mm-hmm. our citizens are enjoying was delivered without increasing our taxes. 
Right. So you that that's that a message then that resonates with other cities when you go there? Do oh, they think that's possible? Well, definitely, because they're they're in a vice. On the one hand, citizens say, don't increase our taxes. On the other hand, citizens say, we want better amenities, we want more amenities, we want parks, community centers, childcare. You know, they want all the bells and whistles of modern living. And those are expensive. And we found a unique way to do that by having the developers, as they enjoy the right to develop, right. to also have to invest in our city, not just in their project, but in the whole city. We're talking about the Vancouver of the past and where that's going to lead us to the future. The book is called Vancouverism. It's written by Larry Beasley, the former co-chief planner for the city of Vancouver. And Larry, you were telling me in the break, I mean, you served seven different mayors. I did. That's a lot. So we're talking, what, Mayor Gordon Campbell, Mayor well, Philip it, Owen, Mayor Sam Sullivan, Mayor Larry Campbell. Like, how many are we going through here? But it even went back f- further than that. In fact, I don't know if I can even remember all the mayors that I served. <laughs> but what was interesting was that as we moved into the late 80s and early 90s, we had lots of debates about the future of our city. And we drew it with thousands of our citizens. And, you know, it was an extraordinary time of invention. But slowly the politics gelled around it. It didn't matter what political party you were from. Often when we got into the late 90s and into the turn of the century, political parties would say, we like what's happening with our planning of our city. Support it, support it, support it, move on to other issues. But would that happen now? Has it become too politicized? Like, could a planner today serve seven different mayors? Well, I like to believe that we have the kind of government which does have sustainability for its officials. It's harder now. The issues are big. The mm-hmm. issues are huge. There is not that social consensus on how we should handle middle-income housing or homelessness, the kind of consensus that I enjoyed in the past. We spent millions of hours working with people to put together that consensus with tens of thousands of citizens. That isn't there. It needs to come back, I think, to our city because local government must be in a leadership role. What more needs to be done? Like we've talked a lot about where Vancouver has come over the last 30 years, but what do we still need to do? Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, uh, this middle in- uh, secure middle-income sector of housing has got to be uh, brought about. We've got to have all the governments working together as they do in other cities. This is nonprofit home ownership, co-ops, uh, uh, secure rental rates, and those kind of things. It's going to be a public and private partnership. Second is we must deal with the issues of the downtown east side. Uh, the way we're handling mental illness and addictions is not working. And we had a huge... Uh, effort back in the 90s, I talk about it in my book. It should be an inspiration for another initiative. You're talking about when we were doing the four pillars approach. Four pillars approach, we called it the Vancouver Agreement. Yeah. But also, we're facing some amazing things here in the future. We haven't even started thinking about what we could achieve through the sharing economy. You know, in Finland, mm-hmm. they cut their living, they're starting to cut their living expenses by up to 30% by sharing of all the things that we individually like, buy, like right? Like what? Well, like uh, lawnmower. And, uh, and, and, and babysitting and all kinds of things that we could be helping one another. And that's got to come in. But even more importantly, we're going to move into a time in 20 years from now where, where we'll have autonomous driving happening. Is that going to overwhelm us with cars? Or one scenario, if you do it a certain way, could mean less and less cars, which mean, in my book, I say up to 50% of the street space could be converted back to pedestrians and cycling and people and all kinds of wonderful things. This is why the planners, the government, 
the creative people of the city, and not just in government, in the private sector, have to have a forward-looking approach. You talked about planning then. When you were doing that job, what about transportation? How much was uh, the focus was on that as well? Because clearly we've underplanned for that, right? It's much more popular than planners could have anticipated. Well, you know, we went through a period, right, right now, As you know, I'm on the board of TransLink. Right now, our transit system is the fastest growing ridership in all of North America. The reason for that is we reorganize the city and even in the suburban town centers so that it's much more uh, sensible and logical and economic for people to use transit. Well, we also, you've got to recall, had a period of over a decade where we were not investing in transit Mm -hmm. and we got very far behind. Thank goodness. In recent years, governments and and funders have come back and said yes. So we are now expanding the transit system quite dramatically. Hundreds of buses. But we are still behind. And we have to get ahead of it. How do we do that? Is that a huge investment? It is a huge investment. But you could look at it this way. If you just look at the street system and the investment we make every day in the street system... We've got to make that same kind of investment in our public transit system. We've got to find new funding sources. We've got to find new ways to, um, to move people around. We've got to take advantage of new technologies, all well, of those things. You talk about investment in the street system. You should explain that to people then because people just assume the roads are the roads. I don't the, think they see that investment. They don't, but it costs millions and millions and millions of dollars to keep that road system functional, adequate, to, keep, to expand that system when you have to expand it, uh, to do all the things to accommodate. Park parking is, costs something like forty-five to fifty thousand dollars a stall to build underground. We're finding we don't need that kind of parking anymore in downtown Vancouver. We're finding most parking structures underneath are about half empty most of the time. So that kind of money mm. needs to be put into a transit system, which could bring us to a level that you would see in the Nordic countries or Northern Europe or or even uh, uh, Hong Kong and Singapore, where people can travel. Very easily. Are we asking those kinds of questions, though, Larry, or is it too now political? Well, I think I think that certainly the leadership of TransLink is asking those kind of questions. As a matter of fact, they're doing a new thirty-year plan, yes, visioning for the future. Yeah. And it, I was so happy as a board member to see that they've put their focus on what are the real questions of what what is the best thinking in the world about moving around in the future. And you know what? That's what my book was about. My book was about a group of courageous people. When people said no one wants to live downtown, no one will get out of their car, no one will, will, you know, all these children will never want to live downtown. And we said, no, we think there is a better way to do this. You talked about children living downtown, right? Because now we need more elementary schools. And who would have thought that 20, 30 years ago that you'd have to build elementary schools in, in downtown Vancouver? And you mentioned not every city does that. Not every city actually welcomes that. No, as a matter of fact, most North American cities either are ambivalent about children in the downtown or uh, I think it was about a decade ago that Toronto passed a motion that they wouldn't be accommodating children downtown. Now, I think that's changed through mm-hmm. the more recent years. But we did the opposite. You know, what we said is, no, we want 25% of all the new housing to specifically accommodate families with children. It needed to be designed to do that. It needed the public amenities, it needed the child care, it needed safety. Oh, why is that important? Why have kids? Because as a part of that? most of the workers downtown have kids. 
And if you want people to live close to their jobs, you've got to have housing that suits them. You know, you've got to have a diversity of sizes of housings. We still do not have... Not just condos that are 600 square feet and less. Exactly. We've (laughs) got to have that diversity of size. We also have to have... Uh, much more attention to securing the affordability at various levels. In my day, we had a crisis of low-income people. And so we put all of our energy into housing low-income people. Now, and this changed about about 2010, we have a crisis of middle-income people yeah. losing, losing so you know, uh, their way. And so now we have to have a strategy for middle-income people. We're starting to see a conversation in our community, but it's not yet gelled in the kind of strategy that will make this happen. And that's what was so amazing about uh, 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 Expo 86 and right after that was that we acted. We, we dreamed, yeah. we convened everyone, we decided, and we acted. This has been a fascinating walk down memory lane, Larry. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Larry Beasley is the former co-chief planner for the city of Vancouver. The book is called Vancouverism. You should definitely check that out. If you want to weigh in, you can email me as well. Simi at cknw.com or use our buzz line 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. Let's dig into one of the top stories of the day here. And this has to do with a city of Surrey report on the planned transition from the RCMP to a municipal police police force. That report is now complete. It has been delivered to the provincial government for review and approval. And it was looked at for the first time by councillors and the mayor at a closed door in-camera meeting yesterday. All we know is what we've heard kind of secondhand. Mayor Doug McCallum says the document is a landmark moment for the city, an important step in bringing local accountability to Surrey residents, which, come on, That's ironic, right? Because we don't actually know what's in it, the report that he's talking about. The next step, he says, are the public engagement sessions, and those begin today, this afternoon, 3 o'clock, at the Cloverdale Rec Centre. But as we said, the report hasn't been released to the public. And the only opposition councillor on Surrey City Council says this is not good enough. So we wanted to talk to uh, Linda Annis, who joins us now. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Simi, for having me. Now, I know you've seen this report. What are your thoughts? What can you tell us at this point? Well, I can tell you nothing really about the report, but what I can tell you that I do find it very shocking that the report has been uh, sent over to Victoria and the residents of Surrey have had absolutely no input to it, and now they're asking for their consultation and engagement on a report that they haven't seen. I quite frankly don't think that that is a good way to engage uh, the citizens of Surrey. How can you possibly report or provide um, uh, your perspective on a report that you haven't seen? So once you saw it, did that make you more convinced that public engagement was needed? Public engagement should have started right from the very start. This is one of the biggest decisions we're ever going to make in the city of Surrey. It's going to cost the taxpayers And in the end of the day, they have to know how, if we just switch the police uh, badge, how is it going to make them feel safer? Uh, Councillor Anasik, why the secrecy then? Like, why, why are we not being told what's in the report? What is the basis for that? Well, I believe um, the mayor is saying that the report had to go to Victoria first and that it would be up to the provincial government to release the contents of it. Okay, and yet, is is there any rule around that? Like, as far as you know, in the city of Surrey, is there any rule regarding this? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, You know, I'm not a a lawyer, and I'm a a reasonably new counselor. Uh, I'm not sure uh, what... uh, 
uh, that would be, but it was certainly an agreement that he struck with the province. What have you heard from people in Surrey? Like, what are they telling you about this? Well, I think the people are, are very frustrated. They're feeling that they haven't been asked, and they're, this uh, document has been prepared in secrecy. No one knows what it was. Council wasn't consulted on it uh, through the process, nor were they. And in the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to be paying for it. And uh, I think if people look at their tax uh, notice that are going to be coming out in the next week to 10 days, there's a line on it. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe the average household in Surrey pays about $800 a year for policing. And you can see it right on your tax notice. And if we do follow the uh, policing model that the Vancouver Police Department do, which Uh, I think would make sense because they're the ones that are actually working with the city to author this report. It could mean up to a 60% increase in your policing uh, tax. So so that roughly for $800 a year, that's somewhere around $480 extra on your tax bill. Right. So so the city, like in, in putting the report together, has been consulting with other police forces? Uh, yes. So what they did, just uh, the Vancouver Police Department and uh, Simon Fraser University, uh, they worked uh, uh, in, uh, with the city of Surrey, with um, with our, our staff and the mayor. Uh, but again, um, we had not seen it. No, no one on council had seen the report prior to yesterday. Has there any timeline been discussed here, Councillor Annis, about, okay, now that it's in the province's hands, do we know what's going to unfold over the next few weeks and months? Well, I... I really, really sincerely hope that the province takes their time. They go through it very methodically. It's not something that should be rushed. It's, as I say, one of the most significant, if not the most significant decision that will ever face the residents of Surrey. It has to be done in a timely fashion. I know the mayor is talking about turning this around in less than two years. I just don't think that's possible if we, if we are to make any changes. What do you say to them, people who are probably considering coming out to the public consultation today? What what should they be thinking? Well, I think they should be voicing their displeasure about uh, the fact that they haven't been consulted until now. And what is this consultation going to look like? What exactly are we consulting on? Uh, Because there's no facts on the table. All right, Councillor Annis, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Appreciate it. You too. That is Councillor Linda Annis from the City of Surrey. She is the lone opposition councillor. As an important symbol for our desire to revitalize our relationship with the Poundmaker Cree Nation, I am here today on behalf of the Government of Canada to confirm without reservation that Chief Poundmaker is fully exonerated of any crime or wrongdoing. I would also like to offer all members of the Poundmaker Cree Nation, past and present, an apology for the historic injustices, hardship and oppression suffered by Chief Poundmaker and your community on behalf of the Government of Canada and all Canadians. That is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Just in the past hour, he's visiting a Saskatchewan First Nation to exonerate, as you heard, Chief Poundmaker, unjustly convicted of treason more than 130 years ago. And the ceremony that you heard is taking place at the reserve that bears his name, the Poundmaker Cree Nation. It's about 200 kilometres northwest of Saskatoon. Now, members of the First Nation describe Poundmaker as an important political leader who spoke out against Treaty 6 and stood up for 
for his people at the time of the 1885 Northwest Rebellion. And they say Poundmaker was inappropriately labeled a traitor, even though he stopped First Nations fighters from going after retreating federal forces that had attacked them. So how did we get to this point in history? Like, you're going to see that headline everywhere today, that the Prime Minister apologized for this. But we wanted to know why. What was the story behind it? And for that, we turn to our guest, Professor James Daschuk, who's the author of Clearing the Plains, Disease, Politics of Starvation, and the Loss of Indigenous Life. And James, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, hi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm really fascinated to learn about this. Tell me about Chief Poundmaker. Who was he? Chief Poundmaker was a, a Plains Cree, a uh, young Plains Cree leader, kind of an up-and-comer, who was acknowledged both by his own people and by Dominion officials to be uh, one of the best politicians, one of the most insightful. So to his people, as you just said in your intro, uh, he was a hero to the Plains Cree, but to the government almost from the time of, of, of treaty negotiations in 1876, he was considered to be a troublemaker and a rebel rouser because he stood up for the rights of his people in a peaceful way. Right, in a peaceful way, and even though he prevented more bloodshed from happening. Yeah, but I think um, just because uh, Indian policy was so draconian in those days that I think uh, any leader that actually you know, tried to remind government officials of, of the, you know, the, uh, the stipulations of the treaty... Uh, were branded troublemakers. So uh, I know that the uh, the government basically had it out for Poundmaker even from the early 1880s. They considered him a troublemaker. His band was cut off rations at least three times between 1881 and 1885. So he worked he worked peacefully, but um, he was he was steadfast in uh, in trying to uh, preserve the rights of his people. So then how did it take us 130 years to get to the point where his story is kind of really fully being told? Well, that's a very good question. I know that, uh, that the folks up at Poundmaker have been, you know, um, his, his conviction, his, his trial was really a show trial. Uh, there's a lot of correspondence between John A. McDonald and Edgar Disney, his lieutenant governor out here. Uh, they, wanted, they wanted a show of power. And so they also wanted to attack Indigenous leadership. So by getting rid of Poundmaker, by, by finding him guilty of treason, and also another uh, great chief, the chief whose English name is Big Bear, by sending them to prison, they basically took care of, of any Indigenous leadership that could have pushed back after 1885. So it was easier then to label them treason, label it all treason, and that made the government of Canada look good? Yeah, well, I mean, that was the way they, they uh, asserted their uh, their power, wasn't it? So you got to remember that at the same time, this is... You know, the same year, Muriel was hanged, uh, not far actually from from, uh, from Poundmaker at Battleford in November of 1885, was the site of the largest mass execution in Canadian history. Uh, six Cree and two Nakota men were hanged in front of hundreds of Indigenous people as a symbol of Canadian force. Basically, the message was, don't mess with Canada because this is what's going to happen to you. So, and here we have these stories. And I think a lot of people, James, today, if, learning about Chief Poundmaker's case would be like, well, why, why don't we hear more about this? Why aren't we taught these kinds of stories? Are we still a long way from fully understanding and grappling with Canadian history? You know, I think that door's open. Here in Saskatchewan, we've got mandated uh, treaty education, and I know that my children are learning about Chief Poundmaker's um, legacy in high school. So, uh, you know, it's taken time. I think with the younger people, changes in curriculum, that we're, we're going to see uh, a larger scale change in our understanding of the past. And what does that mean for us then? Does that change the relationship that we have with Indigenous people? 
Uh, I'm hoping so, yeah. But like, I, I think once we realize just how unjust Indigenous policy was in those days, I mean, here in Saskatchewan, probably out in, in BC as well, there was an extra legal pass system that basically incarcerated First Nations people on their reserves from 1885, again, about this same time, up until the 1940s or 50s. Like, it, Indigenous people were prisoners on their reserves. This is such a part of history, I think, that, we, as you're saying, we're just starting to learn more about. So then how significant is it that the Prime Minister went there today to apologize? Well, for the community, I, I watched the uh, watched the news coverage. It was very important. I know that the, the folks from Poundmaker have been working on this, negotiating for, for actually decades. I think it was the 1990s when they started it. Also, it's uh, probably good for the Prime Minister. We've got an election coming up, and we've got a very high percentage of Indigenous voters here in Saskatchewan. And uh, this is a way for him to um, to push the ball of reconciliation down the road a little bit. Uh, you know, he's been behind, he's, he's probably behind schedule on, on what he promised. So this is uh, probably, you know, a win-win for both communities. And are, are there more chief pound makers in our history that we need to know about? Oh, I'm sure, I'm, uh, there's no doubt that there are. It's just, um, you know, I was telling someone this morning, uh, the government won't exonerate anyone unless they're asked to be, you know, they've been asked to exonerate them. So uh, I'm sure other communities will, will come through. There was just an apology for, uh, you know, the, the medical evacuation of Inuit people for tuberculosis. Um, but I mean, you know, uh, the door is just, just beginning to be open. There are more and more situations that we'll be hearing about in the future, for sure. And James, what do you say then to people who go, oh gosh, another apology? And you know, there is that attitude, which is why we wanted to do this today to actually explain what was going on. But there are people who feel like, what are all these apologies for? Yeah, well, what the apologies are for is that the Canadian government acted in bad faith and we're finally recognizing it. And and the people running the Canadian government are recognizing it. So, uh, I mean, you know, the process of, of reconciliation is going to take, you know, years, if not you know, decades, but uh, it's a start. It's a start with these symbolic acts. All right, so interesting. James, thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, thank you. Take care. You too. That is Professor James Daschuk. He's the author of a book called Clearing the Plains, Disease, Politics of Starvation, and the Loss of Indigenous Life. And I got to tell you, when I started looking into this story this morning, because I wanted to learn more about it, and I came across this book, I thought, where has this book been my whole life? You know, Bruce Allen was just lamenting in his reality check that it was a quiet night in sports last night. True, but that is not the case tonight. The Raptors are taking on the Bucks in the NBA Eastern Conference Final. The game goes at 5.30 this evening. It is a big one, especially since they tied the series 2-2, right, after that last game. This really does seem to be the series that is getting all the attention. And one of the reasons why, believe it or not, is Raptors superfan Drake. Drake is Spike 2.0 with, with some of his uh, jarring and talking to some of the NBA stars. We saw him coming, mocking Joel Embiid in the airplane the previous round. Now he's having words with Giannis, but you love it. I know. It's a funny thing about Drake, right, is that he sits there courtside. There's talk about the, dra- the Drake curse, right? We've done that before on the show. But in this particular series, it's a, in a completely different scenario. I mean, the general manager of the Toronto Raptors yesterday actually gifted Drake with a jacket, like a special Raptors jacket encrusted with all these diamonds worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. There was actually a piece in the New York Times this week that argued that every NBA team needs to have its own Drake. Like, what is going on there? He is having a moment and not necessarily for his music either. And meanwhile, when it comes to the other big story in Toronto and sports, it has to do with Kawhi Leonard, right? Their superstar. They knew when they traded for him last year 
that there was the potential of only having him for one year before he becomes an unrestricted free agent this summer. And so to try to lure him to stay, everybody is getting in on this. And I mean, everybody is getting in on this. It's not just sports fans. It is business people. It is like fans. It is even restaurants, tourism industry, you name it. Uh, They've begun this Kawine and Dine initiative to try to convince Kawhi Leonard to stay in Toronto. The Raptors Republic's official Twitter account posted a video of uh, the NBA on TNT's Kristen Ludlow describing the campaign during a timeout in Game 4 of the Eastern Conference Finals. Have a listen. Welcome back to Toronto, where Raptors Republic is campaigning to keep Kawhi Leonard with the Kawhi initiative. Their motto, wine them, dine them, let's resign them. Yeah, restaurants are getting in on this. So we wanted to learn more about what the heck is going on in Toronto these days with the Raptors. So Artie Patel joins us now, the senior national online reporter for Smart Living on Global News. And we're going to say Drake expert. Is that your official title? That should be my official title, yes. So we should put that above everything else, Drake expert. (laughs) Hey, what is this Kawhi and Dine thing all about? So I have to say the city's fascination with Kawhi right now is just next level because A, it's been a really long time since we've had a really good player on our team. And B, it's about time where the finals seem very, very close for Toronto. And I know for Toronto sports history, for anyone who knows Toronto sports history, that's not always the case. So I think everyone and literally anyone is doing everything in their power trying to get Kawhi to stay in Toronto next year. Okay, so even restaurants are, what, offering him free meals? Yeah, so some there's restaurants who are willing to offer free meals. There was another uh, real estate investor who said that if, if he had stayed, he will give him a penthouse next year. Okay, that's so, so I love this restaurant story, though. So, like, restaurants are putting up, what, a sticker in their window of Kawhi Leonard, and if that sticker is there, Kawhi Leonard can walk in and get a free meal anytime. Yes, it's, I mean, the other thing is that they're offering him free food for life if he stays with the Raptors, which is a pretty good deal in my perspective. But I think it's kind of just a fun time to be in playoff season because you're getting a lot of these like cool little community stories of people just really supporting Kawhi. That is so true. Uh, how deeply involved is he in the community? Like, has he been out and about? Has he? Been, I know he's like very mercurial. So has he been out and about and seen? No, so he's not at all. Actually, there's been very, very little, like I would say, sports or basketball paparazzi shots of him doing anything. Um, He's a very, very private person. He doesn't even have social media or use social media or even want to use social media. So we really don't know where he is when he's not playing basketball. But I think the fascination with him is just so wild here because he is such a great player. And I think the reason when he came here was a little bit controversial too because there there were conversations that, you know, he didn't want to be in a city like Toronto. Yeah. Um, but Toronto, I mean, that's a little biased here, but Toronto can be a very lovable city if you can deal with the winter. And I think since then, there's just been this real push and a really a big internet joke of, you know, is he staying? So every time he does one little thing, it rolls into, you know, a quick scenario of people saying, oh, well, he's staying. So just like the example right. in the last game, um, he's an ambassador for New Balance now, and he designed these Drake-inspired New Balance shoes. And everyone was on Twitter saying, well, he's staying, you know, he has now Drake on his shoes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and what is the deal with Drake? Like, I know there's the Drake curse, and we've made, you know, we've made fun of that and talked about that, too. He is so, it seems like, deeply entwined with the Raptors. He is, I think, overly entwined with the Raptors. Oh. So, uh, in 2013, Drake became, uh, you know, an ambassador 
for the team. It's a very unofficial title. Nobody really else had this role. And I don't think there was one way to look at this. So he basically had courtside seats. He doesn't come to all the games. He comes to some game nights uh, during the regular season, but you can always see him during the playoffs. So one of the cool things is when they did was for Drake night, so they had specific nights for Drake where the Raptors team would wear jerseys inspired by, you know, Drake or OVO colors. Uh, fans who are sitting in specific sections get swag and t-shirts with OVO and Drake. Um, one really cool thing he did a few years ago for the playoffs is he actually went out into Jurassic Park, which is this area outside of the arena where fans just watch uh, right. for free during the game. He went out and did like a little uh, talk which is pretty cool if you're a rapper fan and you're a Drake fan and just to be in that atmosphere and, and know that someone who loves the rappers as much as you do, it's kind of fun. Yeah, but what is this also super high-end exclusive club that's at Scotiabank Arena? So he also opened a club uh, called the Sure Club at the ACC a few years ago, and it is very exclusive. You have to have a membership to get in. I tried to get a membership. It didn't work. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> Not at Drake level yet, um, <laughs> but in some of the cities, like Biggest Movers and Shakers, you have like actors, you have real estate people, you have like insurance and money. It's money, right? It's money flowing in and out. And it's a lot of people who actually sit courtside as well. The other huh. thing about Raptors season ticket holders is a lot of them are kind of the same. So a lot of them have access to Sure Club as well. So, so it's like inside, it's invite only to join this it's club. It's invite only. Yeah, there's no way. It's funny because if you ever go to a Raptors game, you see people going in and out and there's always fans who just like stand, stand around outside. and start taking photos <laughs> because it's just a very exclusive thing that not everyone gets to experience. So, so I'm, I'm fascinated by this, Artie, that the Raptors are so willingly kind of joining themselves to Drake on this level. Like that's something that you don't see at any other kind of professional sports franchise. Not at all. And I think basketball, I think basketball culture is different in that sense that it sticks out where you're like so heavily involved, even when that it means, you know, sitting courtside, but standing up and yelling and giving the coach a massage is which what he did a few days ago. And that sort of oh caused gosh. a lot of fire because you would never <laughs> see that at any other sport. No. Um, but I think That's the Raptors have a lot to gain from this as well, because I think a lot of fans are going to the games because they know Drake's going to be there that night. You know, they're going for OVO swag. They're going because they love the excitement. You know, a few years ago, the Raptors, <laughs> Drake showed up at a Raptors playoff games with a lint roller and he was just like rolling his clothes. And then the next game, the Raptors gave out lint rollers, you know, like it became just like that is so funny. a meme. So, so I mean, I he's think- like the next level because like the New York, I'm a Knicks fan. The New York Knicks have Spike Lee. They've always had Spike, Spike Lee. Lee. Yep. Yep. If you're a Lakers fan, you've got Jack Nicholson. He's a, so he is like that guy. He is that guy for Toronto. And the other thing that people were sort of complaining about a few days ago is that, you know, well, he's just a big distraction and all these things are happening. And like, I argue that. Yeah, okay. I think Nick Nurse, who's the coach, he's been doing this for a while. He knows how to coach. I don't think he'll be he'll be super distracted by Drake. But at the same time, like I don't think Drake is a big security threat. If a fan tried to do that, I understand that fan would be banned from the arena for yeah, life. Exactly. But I think someone like Drake, he's also friends with some of these guys. You know, he's friends with a lot of basketball players. They hang out like after the game or postseason and whatnot. So for him, it's it's just, to me, it just reminds me of, like, being in a high school where you just have, like, one really active friend who didn't make the team, but he's, like, there supporting you the whole way through. <laughs> it is so funny. All right, well, listen, best of luck tonight. Fingers crossed, Artie. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. This is Artie Patel, who's the senior national online reporter for Smart Living on Global News. Oh, no, darn it. Forgot. I forgot. I was supposed to put the other title first. Drake Expert 
also senior national online reporter for Smart Living on Global News. That's how she wanted to be introduced as the Drake expert. Hey, there's a big ceremony happening today at the BC Sports Hall of Fame. The latest inductees are going to be officially honoured this evening. It's going to be quite the show. Uh, quite a few that are very familiar to you. I think Ron Toygo is on that list. I think the Sedines are on that list. And we actually have one of the inductees in our studio right now that we are going to uh, find out how she got there. It's Kelly McCallum. 30 times played for Canada's national rugby team, represented our country in the 2002 and 2006 World Cups, the first women's rugby player to be inducted into the BC Sports Hall of Fame. And she's come all the way back from New Zealand for the occasion, and she joins us now. Thank you for being here, and congratulations. Thanks, Simi. It's fantastic to be here. Is this, did you ever expect to be honoured like this? No, no, I never, never did, until I got the email probably about four months ago. Really? <laughs> yeah. With all that history, you didn't yeah. think that was going to happen? Yeah, no. It was day by day for every day of my playing, and yeah. What do you love about rugby? Um, lots of things. I love the the camaraderie, the family atmosphere, the contact, the all. It's multiple sports put into one that I could use lots of my multiple sports into one. Um, but probably most is the friends that I've got over the years. You love the contact. Yeah, I do. Because <laughs> <laughs> like getting out there and maybe pushing a few people around is kind of fun sometimes. Yeah, and it's empowering and confidence. And it's really taken me through a lot of parts of my life to where I am now. Now, let's talk about how you got started in this, because I know I remember you telling us uh, before that you, you really had like an accidental start in rugby, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, I was uh, actually a soccer player, and um, my friend that I was watching at the time, uh, was dating at the time, he asked me to come watch his rugby match because I'd never seen rugby before. So he kept talking about it, and he said, well, just come out and see what it's all about and so I went out but he told me the wrong time oh. and it ended up there was a girls rugby team or a women's rugby team on the field and as soon as I showed up in my soccer I've just played a soccer game and uh, one of the girls came off Lisa McLeod who's one of my best mates today um, said oh hey you in the soccer outfit come on on the field we need you we need one more player so we can play and I said to her I said oh no no it's all right I've never seen rugby before I wouldn't even know what to do she said, come on, come on. And my brother, who was in grade eight at the time, had just started. He was at Balmoral North Shore. And he said, Gal, 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 run up and down the sidelines with you. Um, and he said, he'll tell you, help you, yeah, like tell you yeah, what yeah, to yeah, do. Yeah. yeah. So I did. I stood literally right on the st- sideline and he ran right next to me up and down. First thing I did was I passed the ball and I ran into the end zone and said, I'm free, I'm free. <laughs> <laughs> the coaches are like, Cal, yeah, no, you pass backwards. This isn't football. So, and that was it. That was, that was it. Yeah. So you played that one game and yeah. you were hooked. Yep. Yeah, gave up soccer, I think, six months later, and that was it. <laughs> when you look back, like, what was it? Like, what was it about the game at that point that just grabbed you? Uh, I think it was the socialness. It was um, it was an instant, an, uh, another family for me. Um, everyone was just so welcoming, and rugby's a very unique sport in, in terms of its, you know, it's just, it feels like family when you're with them. Yeah, that seems to be the case even for the audience when they watch it these days. Like you look at the rugby sevens, you look how popular these events have become, mm. uh, and it's huge now in BC. It is, it is, it's massive. I mean, the women's are, the women's team is doing really well. The men's team uh, uh, too, and it's yeah, it's just once it came into the Olympics too. That that was a big boost for the sport. How old were you then when you first started playing? That moment when you got pulled onto the field. Twenty. Uh, so you were twenty. Yeah, it was the first time. And that was the first time. Mm. And you went on to have this amazing career. What was it like playing for Team Canada? Oh, amazing. Yeah, very privileged to, and honoured to play for Canada. Um, 
Yeah, and amazing. And my national team members, um, my Douglas uh, team was the first one I played for for the club, but the national team members, still longtime friends with me too. Do you have like some favorite memories, some great moments? Like what really sticks in your mind? Uh, playing for Canada 2006 was in World Cup, was World Cup was here. Um, oh, so yeah, the support, I that. Yeah, yeah, so the support um, and, yeah, just that, mo- just that moment of playing at the World Cup in, in Canada itself, you know, singing the national anthem in, the, in Canada. When it comes to women's soccer, yeah. a sport you've also played, mm. we know that there have been a lot of challenges for women's soccer players because uh, in quality, in terms of the playing, like just making sure that they get exactly what the male players get and they don't always do that. But what's it been like for women in rugby? Yeah, it's, it's for my playing days, it was always not hill battle um we had to pay a lot of money you know for i think our for our world cup we paid a thousand dollars our own out of our own to go to our own yeah world cup you had to pay yourselves to get to represent your country at the world cup yeah that was back then but since then rugby canada's uh, has gone full on board with the sevens and the women's and now they they have heaps of resources and and they get paid professionally and that's what they do to play play so you can see the difference that's happened only in a short span it, so when you had to pay back then, was it just something you thought, oh, this is what we have to do? Or do you think, wait a minute, why am I paying for this? Yeah, there, it, was a bit, it was a bit of both. So it was, um, we were always fighting, you know, always petitioning, saying we need to be equal with the men. Um, and also a, bit, also a bit of let's just get on and do it. And that, I think, created our mindset. A lot of my friends today have really strong mindsets in terms of that's what we got to do. We have to work. We have to practice in between. We've got to work practice on our own um so i think a little bit it developed me too in my mindset later on and helped me do you think we're closer now to kind of equality between men's and women's rugby yeah definitely a lot closer than we were before but still not quite there yet yeah not quite there and living in new zealand too it's it's even wider it's better here in canada than it is oh yeah definitely in what way like what's it like in new zealand new zealand um the women because they keep winning they don't get the support so they yeah so it's i know it's kind of a (laughs) catch-22 so they keep winning so um you know, well, you're winning, so why should we support you? They take it stuff? for granted. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you don't need us. Yes, yes, because they keep winning. But that also has changed. I know. That also has changed in the last few years. Uh, New Zealand Rugby Union has jumped on board with the Sevens and just want to keep them on, on top. So Right, yeah. and rugby is so huge there too, isn't it? Yeah, it's massive. It's their identity. So. It's like hockey for us yeah. too. Yeah. Did you ever have any concerns though when you played? Because rugby, we also know, you talked about the contact, yes. right? And we know the concussions yep. are a big concern mm. and mm. Uh, that's obviously something that people have worried about. What about mm. you? Um, yeah, I mean, concussions have always been there um, in every sport, even in soccer too with me. Um, and definitely in the last, well, in the last probably few months, it's been real... Um, an alert, a red alert for a lot of people. But to be honest, it's uh, um, the concussions. I mean, taking away contact or anything from a sport is, you know, that's why we love about it. That's what I've gained my strength and my confidence and empowerment with. Um, rugby's really good at monitoring the concussions. They're well ahead of a lot of sports. And so we tag everything in rugby. So the concussion what do you rate, mean, yeah. So if, if, if uh, someone gets concussed, then it's marked down. And we're really good at monitoring it, um, which might be detrimental to the, the whole argument itself is because we're so good, it's, it's recorded. Right. So we actually know our concussion rate in rugby as opposed to other sports. So um, Interesting. Yeah, okay. so it's quite high. Yeah, rated. for the players yeah. then, that's a known system that you can't, you're not going to skirt around this. Even if you're saying, coach, I'm good, I can go in. Yeah. There's yeah. a protocol. Yeah. And definitely I think what needs to happen more so than what the concussion rate is, is the recovery time. So even though we know, you know, certain concussions need a certain amount of recovery time, 
Um, I think the research needs to actually go into that. Actually, how long is the recovery time? Is it two weeks or is it actually two months? You know, right. if you injure your shoulder, you know that you need to take two months off and then you're okay. And did it ever happen to you? Yep, I did have, yeah, I had a concussion, um, probably two concussions, but yeah. And what was the recovery like for you? Yeah, the recovery, I think we took, I took a month off off my first one and yeah, it was fine. And then I think later on um, in life, I got a little bit of a, a knock in touch, actually. It was just plain touch. It wasn't even contact. Right. Um, and we accidentally ran in and it was a couple of days for me. That for that, Yeah. So when you look at other sports that are kind of struggling with this, do you wonder like, no, just like talk about it. What's the big deal? Here? Yeah. Yeah. Talk about yeah. it. Monitor it. Um, you know, it's out there. It's out there in a lot of sports. It's just, just needs to be recorded. We just need to do more research on actually how long you need to recover from a concussion. Now, has your perspective changed at all after you had kids? I know you've got two small kids. They're here with you today. I'm waving to them over there in the studio right now. Uh, does, has your perspective at all changed about sports, contact, concussions, all of that when you've got kids now? No, not not so much. Um, my girls play field hockey, but that's just... Uh, the, ah, the, field hockey. Listen, that can be physical too. My yeah, kids played field hockey. Definitely, yeah. definitely. And that's a sport where we, where we live is what is played. But they, well, they've both uh, played rugby and... And in New Zealand, you don't stop kids from on the sideline tackling. I mean, they're just constant. At lunchtime, they're tackling each other. And yeah, <laughs> they just do that That's great. all the time. That's awesome. <laughs> um, but field, it's funny you mentioned field hockey, though, too, because I love watching field hockey. It's a great sport. Yeah. It's fantastic. I would never got involved because soccer was always the season when field hockey was. Right. So I always played soccer. But since the last since my girls have been in it is a fantastic sport. I know. It, it is growing, too. It teaches you so much. Yeah. So you're going to have a big night tonight. Mm. You're going to be up there on the stage with people like Daniel and Henrik Sedin mm. and, you know, Ron Toigo, the uh, owner of the Giants and all sorts of all these, all these people who are being recognized. What does that feel like? What does that tell you about your career? Yeah, I guess it was a bit humbling yesterday when we, when we, got, we took, yeah, we took our plaques off the wall um, and just listening to the history of all these legends. In the, and you you're know? one of them though, Kelly. <laughs> I know it's hard to it's hard to imagine and uh, yeah and I mean Gareth Reese was there who who's been a legend in rugby Canada yes. for yeah and so we've got some but I've known Gareth for years so it was just really surreal actually to be in here and meet them all too. Do you feel like a role model? I mean, you're the only woman from rugby that is going to be in the BC Sports Hall of Fame at this point. Yeah, I do. I feel I feel honored um, that it, it started this pathway and I feel honored represent rugby too not uh, male female but also rugby as a sport um because it's my passion and yeah love yeah, it. you love it yeah. before i let you go i have to ask you about your dad <laughs> sure. um kelly mccallum's dad as you might have guessed is surrey mayor doug mccallum he once told us that he still plays tennis a couple times yes like, he does he does and he can still beat me <laughs> oh come on i thought that was like a, i thought he was just making things up no no, he te- he plays tennis. He- if he Doug was McCallum, to play me tomorrow, the mayor of Surrey, he would beat me. Yes, he is a very good tennis player. <laughs> he could beat you at tennis. Yes, he would. Your BC Sports Hall of Fame class of 2019. <laughs> I won't tell you about my tennis skill, but <laughs> I would just like you to record it and send me the video, please, next time you play. I love that. Yeah, so he paddleboards. He- he's really active. <laughs> well, so yeah. funny. Well, Kelly, it's your day today. So listen, congratulations. Oh, thanks, Simi, and thank yeah. you so much for joining us. Oh. It's great to be here. Have a good time tonight. That is Kelly McCallum, BC Sports Hall of Fame, class of 2019, played 30 times for Canada in women's rugby, played in the 2002-2006 World Cup, and she tonight will become the first women's rugby player to be inducted.